So once again this morning, we return to Psalm 71. I'll be reading verses 1 through 24 once again. Uh, this is the third message out of this uh, wonderful psalm. Um, and as you probably have perceived, as we've been looking at this the last couple of weeks, that this is a psalm. It's anonymous in terms of our understanding of who exactly has written it. Possibly Jeremiah. Uh, there are, in fact, good correlations and good reasons why it might be Jeremiah. But in any case, it is the petition and prayer and plead of an old man. Uh, and I kind of resonate with uh, that kind of authorship of this particular psalm. So reading Psalm 71, verses 1 through 24. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O God, my God, from the hand of the wicked and from the grasp of the unjust and cruel man. For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent to many, but you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all the day. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Forsake me not when my strength is spent. For my enemies speak concerning him. Those who watch for my life consult together and say, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him. For there is none to deliver him. O God, be not far from me. O my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed. With scorn and disgrace may they be covered who seek my hurt. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you. You have made me see many troubles and calamities. You who have made me see many troubles and calamities will revive me again. From the depths of the earth, you will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. I will also praise you. With a heart for your faithfulness, O oh my God, I will sing praises to you with a lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, my soul also, which you have redeemed. And my tongue will talk of your righteous help all the day long. For you, for they have been put to shame and disappointed who sought to do me hurt. 
let's now ask the Lord to uh, grant us such a measure of his spirit that we can understand the word that uh, we are opening up this morning. Our God and Father, we do pray, recognizing uh, that it has been the work of your Holy Spirit uh, to inspire the scriptures, uh, to bring us your truth, to bring us your word. We would pray for uh, another work of your Holy Spirit, that which you have promised to believers, not that we would be inspired such that we would be organs of revelation, but rather that we would be vessels of your illumination, that you would pour forth by your spirit such light upon our understanding that we would be filled with the knowledge of your word and your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, uh, that we might uh, walk in a manner that's worthy of the name of Christ, that we might bear fruit in every good work, and that we might grow in our knowledge of you. This is our prayer as we come to your word this morning. Uh, open to us our our eyes, open our very eyes that you would open to us your law and that we might perceive and understand and see wonderful things contained in it. Lord, we do not need new revelation. We need your gracious uh, spirit working in us to understand that which you have already revealed to us. Uh, give us such an understanding, we pray this morning. Uh, we thank you for all the saints whose testimonies and lives have been canonized in Scripture uh, to give us the only rule for faith and practice. And this we thank you for and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, I want to begin this morning by giving you uh, two very different pictures of the Christian life, both of which are true. Um, I'm sure that some of you uh, earlier in your Christian life um, learned the song, This Train is Bound for Glory, uh, the glory train song. And, and that's a kind of a picture. The idea that the Christian life is like a train ride that has a very definite beginning point and a very definite end point. And it is set on a set of rails that keeps the course perfectly directed, perfectly set. That is to say, trains don't meander. Um, the Amtrak from Los Angeles to San Diego is, you can trust it, steady and stable. It's not going to deviate from the path. Its movement, although there's a number of stops, is always steadily forward. So that picture uh, fits a certain way of looking at the Christian life, the way, in fact, the Christian life would be described in Philippians 1.6, for instance, uh, that, that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You see, that verse, that picture looks linear. It looks rather straightforward, uh, always moving in the right direction, which is to say, uh, once you are saved, you're always saved. That's the Baptist abbreviation of a, of a doctrine that's actually a little more complex than that. But, you know, if you get on the train that is bound for glory, you will most certainly arrive at the gates of heaven. But there's also a second picture of the Christian life. Uh, it corresponds to that further statement that we find in the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this statement of Paul opens up a, a different sort of picture of the Christian life. Uh, because here the Christian life involves a calling to obedience to Christ. Uh, it calls upon us to work out our salvation, not working for. There's no salvation by works contained in what Paul says here. But a working out of our salvation that is so significant, the effort that we need to apply is so significant, It's it, 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 it involves the greatest kind of seriousness so that Paul describes it as, as something that needs to take place with fear and trembling. Now, the statement of Paul's here is really related to all those other New Testament passages that compares the Christian life to a race uh, or to a spiritual battle or a wrestling with principalities and powers in the heavenly places or struggle or something with obstacles and adversities and adversaries all sorts of hardships, along with our sin and our folly, uh, backsliding, drifting, uh, the need and call to repentance, the need to return and get back on track in terms of walking properly with Christ. So this second picture is not like a train ride at all. It's not like something that seems to automatically carry us forward. Rather, this second picture is really about perseverance. And I would say this, this second picture is more like that of a, of a, of a rock climber. Uh, and, and not, not, a, not an expert rock climber. Someone who's really quite a beginning rock climber. Who faces unknown terrain. Who has to climb upward, always increasing in elevation. He knows he has to keep going upward. He knows he has to ascend. But he's never come this way before. He knows that he has to reach the top of the mountain. Uh, that's the goal. He knows it's his duty, it's his calling to climb and to keep on climbing. But he's also going to encounter all sorts of hardships, all sorts of obstacles. I mean, even rock climbers have had malicious enemies who have sought to stop them from doing what they were doing. Things trying to keep this rock climber from climbing. He knows that on some of the paths that he might try to take, uh, he could slip. Uh, fall, lose his footing, perhaps even get seriously hurt. But the novice rock climber also knows that he's actually harnessed in, which is to say um, there is a harness that beginning rock climbers necessarily have to wear, where there's an expert who's actually holding on to a rope, performing the function of belaying that climb. For the Christian, there's also this reality of being harnessed in in this climb. It's not visible to the human eye, but only to the eye of faith. But it's a reassuring truth. Harnessed in with a safety rope that is held by, that's belayed by the person of Christ. And then the anchor that holds that rope with infinite security is the very work of Christ. Thus, as hard as the climb may be, 
faith holds on to this certain hope that for those whom Christ has died, his work on the cross guarantees that we will finish the climb, we will reach the top of the mountain, we will arrive at eternal, our eternal destination. Now, that is why Paul finishes Philippians 2.12 with these words. For it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, if we put these two pictures together, we capture one of the key doctrines of grace, God's saving grace. This process, this activity, this experience that the vocabulary of grace describes, uh, the Reformed tradition is called the preservation of God in the perseverance of the saints. Now, in terms of what we're reading here in this psalm, we're specifically looking at the picture of climbing, that aspect which is properly the perseverance of the saints, which is to say it's about the believer who's climbing, but the one who is holding the believer who's climbing is the God who's the faithful God, who guards, who guides, who guarantees that his climb is going to reach the summit of eternal life. But the climbing is the working out of our salvation with fear and trembling. Yes, God is the one who belays our climb. He's the one who works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. God is the one who began a good work in us. He will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But that's always coordinated with and stands behind invisibly, as it were, the reality and truth that the saint himself must persevere. Now, in this section of the psalm, we have the biographical testimony of the perseverance of this old man who is a saint, a believer. And from his testimony, we can see this main truth, this main concern. Since it is the normative path of our salvation experience, and what I mean by that, perseverance, uh, struggles, obstacles, uh, having all these things happen as the normal and normative path of our salvation experience, genuine believers must and will persevere in their faith and life. Salvation involves and requires the experience of perseverance. And that's why Paul prays in that prayer that we've looked at in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, when he has asked God to fill the Colossian believers with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, that they would bear fruit in every good work, that they would increase in the knowledge of God, but specifically, verse 11, that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul prays for the Colossian believers to persevere. It's a necessary part of the Christian life. We must all be strengthened with all power, the power of Christ, to have this endurance, to have this patience, and living out the life that is pleasing to the Lord. So what we've come to now is to really look at the persevering life of the believer. Now, what we've looked at prior to this in terms of this biographical picture of this, this life of this old man was, first of all, the God who is there, 
that was our first message. Then we looked at the believing life, a second message, verses 5 through 8. Today, we are looking at the persevering life. This is our third message next week, uh, and I'll be preaching from Colorado next Sunday. Uh, but next week, we'll be looking at the fourth message in terms of the God-centered life. Now, the question I want to begin with, though, as we consider verses 9 to 18, is this. Is this idea or teaching of the perseverance of the saints found in the Old Testament? A few weeks ago, we actually looked at Psalm 73. Uh, that was a story biographical of Asaph having a tremendous crisis of faith. Uh, remember that uh, uh, Dr. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls that entire psalm, uh, as it were, faith on trial. In verse 21 to 24, this is how Asaph uh, speaks about his experience. He says this in his prayer to God. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now, look at what he says. Even in the midst of his faith being so tested by that struggle over the prosperity of the wicked, even when this had embittered him so much spiritually, God still held him by God's own right hand. Even though he had moved away from God, God had never moved away from him. And Asaph's certainty was that God would still guide his life and guard his life. And after he died, he would be received by God into glory. Now, that's the doctrine. That's the teaching that we're going to find in Psalm 71 as well. God's grip on our lives ensures that we will travel the journey of pain, heartache, suffering, questions, setbacks, personal sin, folly, failure, because God himself holds us by his right hand. God has his grip upon us. And as Jesus reminds us in John chapter 10, no one can snatch us out of the hands of the Heavenly Father. And because of that, we will keep returning to Jesus. So if it's actually true of you, that you can say, the Lord is my shepherd, then it's also true of you that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is this wonderful doctrine. And without question, the Old Testament teaches this wonderful doctrine, that God who began a good work in us, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's his preservation of us as saints. Because it is God who is at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. Because we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's the perseverance of the saints. So this section in this portrait of the long life of the believer can be looked at from that perspective of his experience as persisting and persevering 
and trusting and hoping in God in the midst of all these conflicts and hardships and attacks of his enemies. And again, the main idea is this. Uh, it's the normative path of our salvation that the Christian life will be hard because that's the case. Genuine believers must and will persevere in their faith and in their life. Now, let's let's break down what he says here into four particular truths. Uh, and, and we'll look at these four aspects of what this perseverance is all about. Uh, first of all, uh, we're going to understand that the persevering life is going to endure throughout lifelong struggle. We've already seen from last week's message that lifelong struggle is the reality of the Christian life. Uh, secondly, we're going to see that the persevering life requires a never-ending dependency. Third, we'll just touch upon the fact that the persevering life worships and witnesses, and then we'll bring this together in terms of the persevering life perceives the rising generation. So, out of this biography of this old man, we see these four vital truths about the perseverance of the saints. Now, the first is this. The persevering life endures through the lifelong struggle. Now, verses 9 through 11, we have the believer's recognition of his own time in life. To put it this way, he realizes that he's in the fourth quarter of the game. This is the last leg of his life's journey. He has the finish line in view. And he has the word of scripture that confirms this, because in Psalm 90, the Psalm of, the Psalm of Moses, in verse 10, Moses writes, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. This old believer knows because of his age, his particular time in the world. And he also knows that the span of time is toil and trouble. But here's the question for us. Do we see life the way the Holy Spirit speaking through Moses presents life? That is to say, do we see our lifespan here as, quote, toil and trouble, even a, a, a long life of struggle? Or, in fact, are we shocked and surprised and shaken when we encounter hard things in life? I want you to think about this, about life and existence of most people in America and other first world countries. The prominent attitude is a perspective of entitlement. Now, brothers and sisters, think about this carefully. This, this, this attitude and perspective of entitlement crosses all points, every point on the political and cultural spectrum. It's the idea that I'm entitled to happiness. I am entitled to a good life. Now, to make sure that we're dealing with this property, Properly, I want you to think about the, the religious right. It is within the religious right that there is this tremendous 
popularity of the prosperity and positive mental attitude message kind of gospel. Now, here's the evidence for that. Just simply go online and look at the web page of Joel Osteen's church. Let me just quote their sort of banner statement. At Lakewood, we believe your best days are still out in front of you. Whether you're joining us in person or online, we invite you to experience our services and be part of the Lakewood family. The Bible says that when you are planted in the house of the Lord, you will flourish. Get ready to step into a new level of your destiny. Now, you know, Lakewood's attended by an average of at least 20,000 people weekly. Some online sources actually say it's double that. Uh, and then online services themselves are viewed anywhere from 7 to 10 million people every week. Osteen's ministry and message is incredibly popular and politically it's on the right side of the spectrum. The truth is, whether on the right or the left, there's a deeply entrenched perspective within the first world cultures, within America and so forth, that somehow we are entitled to something so much better in this life and in this world than we often have it. The norm of life is not supposed to be at all like this, quote, toil and trouble. But God says it is. But he does not say that life's struggles, toil, and trouble should defeat you or make your life a waste of time or prevent you from ever experiencing any sense of joy or blessedness. Rather, we see in this testimony the psalmist this old man, that the persevering life endures throughout this lifelong struggle. There's an endurance. Uh, he prays as part of that endurance, the God, please help me prayer. Uh, he prays it in verse 9 that God would not cast him off, uh, that God would not forsake him, since, as he says in verses 10 and 11, his enemies are working together to take him down, possibly even to kill him. The psalmist does not give up praying and beseeching God for God's help and intervention, and this is perseverance. It is perseverance to keep on praying for God's help, for God's deliverance in the midst of toil and trouble, life's never-ending struggle. Now, to help us see this, I want us to consider what Jesus and James have to say and what they teach about this practice of persevering in life, life that we're not entitled to things that are great and good, uh, a life that God says is going to be toil and trouble, but, but how to approach it, to pray, to think, to endure, to persevere. So Jesus teaches the truth, this very truth and practice, in the parable that we find in Luke 18, 1 through 8. It's the parable of the unjust judge and the persistent widow. She has an adversary who's taken unfair advantage of her. She wants justice and protection. Jesus says that she keeps coming to the judge and pleading her case. And finally, this unjust judge is so thoroughly worn down and worn out by this that he relents. He gives her justice. 
And then Jesus makes this application in verses 7 and 8. He says, And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That is, the point that Jesus makes is God's people live in the midst of toil and trouble. But God's people pray, and they persist in praying. They persevere in praying, for they have confidence that God will help them to endure under these struggles all throughout their lives. And then James adds this perspective on perseverance in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, which is another word for perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is talking about the victory of faith in enduring through the struggles of life. And God uses these experiences of toil and trouble to produce steadfastness, to produce perseverance, which produces in us then a, 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 a greater moral and, and spiritual maturity, uh, the greater kind of character that reflects Christ better. The writer of Hebrews calls this the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The Apostle Paul himself calls it conformity to the image of Christ. But we need to nail this down. The normal Christian life, the normal Christian life, is one of struggle that will last all of life. Because Paul said to Timothy, all who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jesus said in the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and, other, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And remember again Paul's prayer in Colossians 1, particularly verse 11. Paul prays that we as believers will be strengthened with all of this power that's resident in Christ. All of this power by which he was raised from the dead. All of this glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. The persevering life endures through the lifelong struggle. But it is God who is at work within us to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, moving on secondly, the persevering life, therefore, in light of all of this, requires a never-ending dependency. And we see this in verses 12 and 13, where, once again, uh, the old man is praying that, you know, God, please help me prayer. So, oh God, be not far from me. Oh, my God, make haste to help me. May my accusers be put to shame and consumed with scorn and disgrace. May they be covered who seek my hurt. Now, the key thing here is he's praying in the midst of all of this. He's depending upon God. He is not hesitating to cry out for help to God. Now, 
This is how the psalm begins, verse 4, where he prays, Rescue me, O God, from the hand of the wicked. Uh, verse 9, Don't cast me off in the time of old age. Don't forsake me when my strength is spent. Verse 18, Even to old age, gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me. So we've already been taught there's, there's a pattern in the psalms where this theme is repeated again and again. This God help me theme. Which means that if it's in the Psalms, God approves of these prayers. It's godly to pray these prayers. These prayers are an essential part of the Christian life. And brothers and sisters, if you're not praying this way, perhaps you're not connecting to God in a way that is so significant. Perhaps you're actually suffering greater spiritual loss because you're not praying this way. Certainly, if this is a pattern of what it means to persevere, it's to our detriment if we don't pray this way. Because the biblical truth is there is a necessity, a constant necessity of our depending upon him. Now, let me give you an example from the Old Testament. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 16. Let me give some background here. I'll remind you of some Old Testament history. After the reign of Solomon, uh, the United Kingdom of the Jews that had begun with Saul and David Solomon, uh, where they all three of these kings ruled over all 12 tribes, there was a split uh, during the reign of Rehoboam, uh, Solomon's son. Ten of the 12 tribes rebelled against uh, Rehoboam. They formed the northern kingdom of Israel. Only two tribes remained uh, as the southern kingdom, which they called the kingdom of Judah. So Judah had the temple. Judah had Jerusalem. There was constant conflict between the two nations. Some seasons of truce, some seasons of cooperation. But for the most of there's a lot of conflict between these two nations that had the same spiritual heritage. Now, during the time of Asa, who was a king of Judah, uh, Basha, the king of Israel, was moving against the southern kingdom, moving against the nation of Judah. And when this was happening, in response, Asa sought the help of the king of Assyria. Now, normally, the king of Assyria was a, was a, was a bad pagan enemy of Judah. And normally, Syria would be in an alliance with the northern kingdom, with Israel. So Asa uh, buys help from this nation with treasures of silver and gold from the temple and also from his own personal wealth. And what happens is, is that the, uh, the movement of Israel, the northern kingdom, against him, they stop because Syria puts this pressure upon them. And so it does protect the southern kingdom. However, God sends Hanani, a prophet, to confront Asa about what Asa has done. And you can read this in Second Chronicles 16, uh, beginning to verse 7. So the prophet says to Asa, because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. That is, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the possibilities of what God was going to do, uh, God was well positioned to grant to Asa, the southern kingdom, uh, a great victory over Syria, their enemy. goes on to verse 8 and 9. So the prophet goes on to say, were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim, Libyans an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? 
Yet because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. This is about an earlier situation. Because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. And then verse 9 is so significant. For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. You have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Now, the significant and fundamental point here is dependency. It is a general truth, and but an absolutely true truth in its generality that of a relationship with God, it must be like what we read in Proverbs chapter 3, uh, verses 5 and 6, where in the wisdom of, of Solomon, we read, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. It's the proverb of dependency. Dependency as a rule of life with God. Uh, this is the relationship that God desires that we have toward him. He wants us to be dependent. And either we rely upon God and dependence upon him, or we are relying upon ourselves, acting independently. But if our hearts are completely his, then we will rely upon him. This is the point of what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. We are all jars of clay. It's the same point that later Christ teaches Paul in chapter 12, where he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. This is Paul's teaching to all Christians. And as the theologian J.I. Packer says, weakness is the way. Because in our weakness, we see our need. And when we see our need, we depend upon the Lord. And it's in our weakness that we will faithfully and urgently cry, God please help me, kinds of prayers. And that's why Paul, even at the end of his life, I mean, in the latter part of his life, continues to demonstrate dependency upon Christ. Uh, he, he, in the latter part of his ministry, he didn't think he had reached the point where he could depend only upon himself at all. So Colossians chapter 4, 2 to 4, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, that's clearly a statement of dependency upon God. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul did not think he could do the work of the kingdom serving Jesus by anything other than the full power of of Christ working in him and through him. We never outgrow our need to trust in the Lord with our whole hearts. We never outgrow our need to constantly lean upon the Lord himself. The persevering life requires a never-ending dependency upon all that God has done for us in Christ. Now, quickly, the third quality, the persevering life worships and witnesses. That's 
verses 14 through 16. The psalmist says, but I will hope continually. I'll praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for the number is past knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. Now, in these three verses, the old man speaks of two aspects of the persevering life, that of worshiping and that of witnessing. We're going to delay looking at worshiping until we come back next week. But I want you to notice this about witnessing. In verse 16, he says, With the mighty deeds of the Lord, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. The them happens to be his accusers. The them happens to be all those who are coming up against him. And it's a very interesting thought that whenever he had interaction with his enemies, this old man doesn't defend himself. It really seems to be his focus that he's not proclaiming his innocence. He's not proclaiming his own righteousness. He's not trying to convince his enemies that what you're doing to me is unjust. Because here's the truth. Evil people don't care about justice. I've been reading a lot recently about early church history before the time of Constantine. And so there was a lot of persecution. And when Christians were brought before the Roman magistrates all throughout the empire, uh, the, the Roman magistrates did not care about the truth or justice of things from God's standpoint of truth and justice. So the early Christians never attempted to argue with the magistrates. They never attempted to answer the magistrates by defending themselves. Rather, what they constantly did was they confessed God. They confessed Christ as their Lord. They refused to burn the incense to the gods of Rome. They simply made their defense before Rome's persecution all about God, all about Christ, and nothing really about themselves or their own innocence. And that's what the old man is doing here. He's reminding his accusers and persecutors about God, God's mighty deeds, God's righteousness alone. He points them back to God, who is the judge of all men, but also the God who is also the Savior of any and all who will call upon him in truth. And our witness needs to keep this in mind as well. Uh, it should not be so concerned with defending what we believe so much as presenting the God who created this world, who governs all things in righteousness, and who's given his son for the redemption from sin. Lastly, the persevering life perceives the rising generation. 17 and 18. Oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who are to come. Verse 18 in particular. This old man speaks of another generation, all who are to come. That is to say, he sees the rising generation and he perceives that he has an obligation to him. And that obligation to proclaim the power, the might, the genuine reality of the one true God is to those 
who are coming after him, the generation that's after him. Now, this idea of the present generation perceiving and then being obedient to this obligation to the next generation is a strong theme in Scripture. In the Psalms themselves, the best example shows up in Psalm 78. If you were to quickly turn there, you would see that the ESV, the non-inspired heading for this psalm, is this, tell the coming generation. Now, the psalm itself is a long recital of how Israel forgot God time and again. From the time of Egypt to the time of David, Israel was forgetting God. And that long recital covers verses 9 to 72. But the first eight verses are the introduction and the prologue, which emphasize the coming and rising generation and the obligation to proclaim the power and might and reality of God to them. So in Psalm 78, verse 4, the psalmist says, We will not hide them, that is the mighty acts of God. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. And then verses 5 through 7, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Now, that is our old man's sense of purpose in his old age. He has persevered by the grace of God all through the past and present struggles, all the toil and trouble of life. He has persisted in living in dependency upon God. He's trusted God with his whole heart. He's leaned not on his understanding. He's persevered in faithful worship. He's giving God the glory in all things, but of final and great significance with respect to his life is this. He sees with great clarity in his old age. He has a calling and a purpose to those who come behind him. Perhaps he had children. Perhaps he had grandchildren. Perhaps he had nieces and nephews and grandnieces and grandnephews. Perhaps he simply looked at the body of believers and saw those much younger than himself. Wherever his sight landed, he perceived a vital calling, a vital purpose, a vital obligation to make the true and living God known to those coming after him. And so it must be for all of us as we grow older to persevere in living the life that Christ has given to us in all of the struggles to depend upon him, to keep his glory and his worship constantly before us so that in our old age we can share with the rising generation the might, the power, the reality, the goodness of the God who has loved us and given his son for us. Finally, perhaps you're familiar with Robert Browning's most famous poem, Rabbi Ben Ezra, and it begins with these words. Grow old along with me. The best is yet to be. The last of life for which the first was made. 
that captures this old man's story. The first part of his life was made for the last part of the life that he now lives. Getting older and getting old is not a curse. It is an opportunity. It is a calling prepared by God that we would persevere in living for Christ so that we have the privilege of declaring Christ's gospel, his goodness, and his glory to all those who come behind us. May God so give us this grace. Amen. And let's pray. Our God and our Father, uh, we thank you for the story of this man's life and what he has presented to us. It is so much less about him. It is so much about you and how he has depended upon you in the midst of all the struggles of life and how you have been a faithful God with him throughout all of the difficulties that he has faced. And now as an old man, to be one who can continue to praise you and give you glory and to still have a purpose and vision for why he's alive and how he should live for the sake of the rising generation, those coming after him. And we pray for ourselves, almighty God, so fill us with the knowledge of your will that we would persevere, that we would love Jesus, that we would never stop living for him. And so that when we reach the fourth quarter of our lives, we would have a testimony like this old man in scripture has his testimony that we will have experienced your power. We will have seen the wonder of your work. We have trusted and found you faithful to take us through the most difficult circumstances in life and have much to share out of your word of your truth of your power, your glory, your salvation in Christ. Almighty God, enable us to do so. Grant us persevering faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.